The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. When you look up at the stars, far from city lights on a clear night, and look up at that canopy of stars, what do you see? What do you see as you look at countless twinkling, glowing lights in the sky, the Milky Way stretched above you? What do you see? If you had been a Babylonian child, looking up at that same sky that we look up at today, almost no change, and you'd look up at that sky, what would you have seen? Well, you would have known, you would have known what you were seeing because your mother or your father or someone in your community would have told you the story of what you saw as you looked at those, that, that, that array of lights spread out through the heavens. So maybe you're an eight-year-old Babylonian. What are you looking at? Mommy, what am I looking at in the sky? Well, my child, let me tell you the story of Marduk. Marduk is the hero of the Babylonian epic, the Enuma Elish. He's not the great god, but he is a god. He's a kind of demigod. And one story that your mother might tell you is the story of Marduk and Tiamat. Tiamat was a great fish goddess. She was actually the goddess of disorder, the goddess of chaos. And so as you looked up at that sky, your mother might tell you the story of Marduk's battle with Tiamat that we happen to have preserved for us on these little clay tablets that have handed on to us the Enuma Elish. And how she would tell you how Marduk entered into this violent conflict with the fish goddess Tiamat, like a great sea serpent she was. And then at the climax of the story, you would listen with excitement as Marduk slays Tiamat. And then Marduk fillets Tiamat. With a great sword, he cleaves her in half. And what happened to Tiamat, mommy? Ah, my child, well, after Marduk slayed and filleted Tiamat, the upper fillet became the heavens. Hmm. And mommy, what are those things twinkling up there? Oh, my child. Those are the congealed drops of blood that oozed out of the fish goddess's corpse. Mm. Mommy, where did the other fillet go? My child, the other fillet of Tiamat became the earth. Mm. And mommy, what are we human beings? Well, my child, just as the stars are the congealed drops of blood from the corpse in the heavens, so we human beings are the congealed drops of blood from the corpse of Tiamat. That's where we are. That's who we are. And you would have believed this story. I know it sounds completely implausible now. But at the time, that was the story of creation. 
And it was believable, not just because ancient people didn't have access to certain kinds of information we have that make it unlikely that it's actually a fish goddess up there, as near as we can tell. But you would have also believed it because that story was told by the most powerful empire of its time. That in the whole world that you knew, this story not just was told, but ruled. And indeed, it did not just, was not just told as a, as a matter of fancy, but it was told to explain how the empire ruled. That we ordinary human beings were not like the gods, but there was one who was like Marduk. There was one who brought order in the face of disorder, who violently, forcefully imposed order on a world of chaos. And of course, that was the emperor. And so the story of Marduk and Timat would have explained to you with great plausibility the world that you lived in, an empire that had spread over the whole of the known world at that time, had conquered every other people with all their stories, including this one little group called the Jews. And that story would have seemed the most true possible account of the world that you found yourself in. And it's in that world, with that story, that this story was written down. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a breath or wind or spirit, all same word, from God hovered over the waters. Then God spoke. And God said, let there be light. A totally different story. But a very intentionally different story. Told intentionally against the grain of the most powerful story of its time. Not a story of violence, not a story of battle, but a story of hovering and speaking. If we are to take on the image of God, we're going to have to ask, in what image are we made? And the best way to find out what image you're made in is to find out what your creation story is. What does the creation story tell us about the God in whose, whose image we're made. So Nate has set, it, set this up so marvelously, and so has Andrew, uh, that all I'm going to offer are a few footnotes on a few things that they either said or hinted at. And it's so beautiful how it holds it together. I want to call your attention to a couple features of the story that the Jewish people kept alive in the middle of Babylon. Because you have to, you have to understand that no creation story and no biblical story is told in a vacuum. It's always a counter story. It's always told over and against another story that at the, at the time seemed more plausible. That's, that was as true when they were first told aloud orally, as true when they were written down, and as true today. It's always a counter story. It always pushes back against the most natural assumptions about how the world was made, who we are in the world, in what image we're made. So I want to start, I'm going to kind of try to do th three things here roughly. I want to start with um, my favorite uh, way to spend a Friday night, actually, which is grammar. 
So uh, Hebrew grammar, like third year Hebrew grammar. This is really good stuff. This is like the real strong stuff. And it has to do with the mood of the verb. Mood, did you know that verbs have moods? According to grammarians, they do. And, and this has to do, the moods of the verb have to do with the way that power is exercised in the creation story. How does the creator God of the Hebrew Bible exercise power? We know how Marduk does it. Marduk enters into a pitched battle where the outcome is very much in doubt between the forces of order represented by the masculine God Marduk and the forces of chaos represented by the feminist... Uh, the, sorry, that was a Freudian slip. The feminine fish goddess Tiamat. We'll come back to that masculine-feminine dichotomy a little later. And, uh, and it's this battle. It's a forceful, violent battle that ends in the slaying of the feminine force of disorder by the masculine force of order. Nothing like that in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and when you think about what verbs, what moods of verbs you might use to indicate power, I think we still think like Babylonians, which is that, to say that when I think of the, the mood of the verb that would most indicate power, I think of the imperative mood of the verb. The imperative is the, the mood of the verb that's used for command. And when I think of power, I think of the ability to command something, to make something happen. And so you might expect that there would be a lot of imperatives in Genesis 1. I am a person of a certain age, and so for me, Star Trek will always mean the next generation. So I know there are other Star Treks out there, but for me, it's, it's TNG all the way, and I have marvelous memories uh, every week of sitting with my roommate and watching the latest episode and consuming an entire quart of Ben & Jerry's ice cream in the course of the show. Oh, to be young again. Um, and uh, there was one very famous thing from the captain of the starship, uh, the rebuilt starship Enterprise, played by Patrick Stewart, that wonderful captain, Jean-Luc Picard. There's this very famous phrase, right? You all know what it is. At moments of crisis, he will lift a finger and he will say, make it so. And I loved when Patrick Stewart would say, make it so. And other people love it too. There's a YouTube mashup of all the times he says, make it so, all like in a row. Make it so, make it so, make it so, make it so. So great, it's great. Imperative, and you would think, oh, that's power. To be able to sit on the bridge of a starship and say, make it so. Almost no imperatives in Genesis 1. Instead, the mood of the verb that we find is something called the jussive. And maybe a slide will show up with that word because you've probably never seen it before. Uh, the jussive is technically sometimes called the third person singular imperative, but don't worry about that. We usually translate it with this phrase, let there be. It's a different mood. When the jussive is used in the Bible, it's mostly used for prayer. It's mostly used for supplication or invitation. The most famous use of it, I suppose in some ways, the most significant use of it outside of this original story, is probably when Mary is visited by the angel. And Henry Osawa Tanner, the amazing American artist, painted it. And I love how he decided not to try to paint the angel. So the angel is just a pillar of light visiting this young girl in a very ordinary house. And he says to her, Hail, favored one. The Lord has blessed you, and you are going to conceive and bear a son. And after pondering this and then asking a few clarifying questions, <laughs> yeah. 
She says, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. And then she uses the justice. Let it be to me according to your word. Her own son, at the greatest moment of crisis of his life in a garden, interesting, it would happen in a garden, says to his father, Lord, if there's, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass with me, that would be great. But if not, let thy will be done. Not let my will be done, but let thy will be done. And again, her son is using the Joseph. He actually taught his followers to pray using the Joseph. The first three verbs of the Lord's Prayer are in the Joseph. Our Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And this is the mood of creation. Not command. Not marshalling forces. But opening. Invitation. Let it be. Let there be light. Let there be. Six days of let there be. And then, on day six, it's a beautiful rhythm, that poem of Genesis 1, and we sort of get used to the pattern. God says, let there be, and it's so, and things come into being, and God, then at the end of the day, God beholds, and at the end, God sees that it's good, and that's repeated over and over, and it's repeated six times, and the sixth day, God has filled the uh, land with creeping, crawling things, like which were enumerated by Nate earlier, the spiders and all that stuff, and the vipers, and all those creatures are there. God sees that, you expect, it's going to say that God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day, because the pattern has been completed. But instead, instead of it being evening and morning and, and creation being over, on the sixth day, there's this bonus round of creation. And in this bonus round, God speaks in a new mood of the verb. It's called the cohortative mood. <laughs> and uh, strictly speaking, it's the first person plural imperative. And we usually translate it, let us make. And we discover in the founding text of monotheism that God is speaking in the plural and that there is some kind of relationality in God. And then what God says following that cohortative verb, let us make human beings in our image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And said to them, and finally we get an imperative. We finally get a command, but it's a very interesting kind of command. It's not a military command. Military commands have very specific objectives for which people are given very specific orders. And the job down the chain of command is to follow with precision the order you were given. But this order, this command, is a little different. God says, be fruitful and multiply. Now, uh, by the way, uh, if you are carefully looking at Genesis 1, there is another imperative. He says it actually to some of the other creatures earlier on as well. But the only imperatives in Genesis 1, in this whole poem, are commands to go do all kinds of stuff. To team, it says. To abound, to swarm, is another word that's used of the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the creatures that, that crawl along the ground. God does not want just order obeying creatures unless they obey this order. Go do all kinds of crazy stuff. So, how, what is the pattern of creation? Well, it is order. The first three days are ordering days. Um, 
Each of days one, two, three introduce a new dimension of binary order in the cosmos. So day one is light and dark. Let there be light, and there was light. And now there's light and dark, the most basic, like the zero and one of creation. There is either uh, information there or not. There is either energy there or there is not. Zero, one, light, dark, day one. Day two, let there be, uh, let the waters separate. In the ancient cosmology, the world is, uh, the cosmos is full of water and there's a dome created to hold back the upper waters. It's not a fish up there, but to the ancient Hebrews, it is water up there. Plausible, actually. Not quite how we see it now, but it's how they saw it. And now God has separated out the heavenly realm, which we don't participate in. It's beyond our can that we can look up into it and see what's there from the waters below. So now up and down are separated, or you might say heavens and earth, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And then on day three, there's further ordering when the water that covers the whole of the earthly realm is separated so that dry ground can appear. So now you have sea and land, light and dark, heavens and earth, sea and land ordering days one, two, three, and then days four, five, six. Maybe you know all this already. Sorry, I'll go through it quickly just in case you might not have noticed that they correspond to days one, two, three, and they are days of filling. So God separates on days one, two, and three, but then he adds abundance into every realm of order. So day four corresponds to day one. Day one is light and dark. On day four, God creates the two great... um, Two great lights, the sun and the moon. But then, like for a bonus, he throws in, oh, a few billion stars that actually we now know are galaxies, each of which has billions of stars. So that's pretty awesome. And that fills this realm of order of light and dark. Day five, corresponding to day two, uh, the waters begin to teem, the heaven begins to teem with birds, and then on day six, before the bonus round with the human beings, comes the filling of the land with the creatures that that, uh, crawl along the, uh, the land. So it's not just order that is in creation. That's Babylonian. That's a Babylonian idea that the world is just order or is meant to be just order and that it's order versus disorder. This God actually wants order plus abundance. Let the waters bring forth swarms of creatures. God does not want just one of every species or a few that you could control and keep track of. He wants so many you can't even count or imagine how many there are. And it's when you have order and abundance that you have flourishing. A couple uh, young people were out and about uh, making like a nature film or something, and they happened to come across a swarm, a really cool swarm, not like a swarm of bees that you'd want to run from, but another kind of swarm. And I want you to just see what they saw. They did what all postmodern human beings do, which is they came home and added a soundtrack to it. So it's just a... Couple seconds, uh, like two minutes from YouTube, uh, and there might be some exclamations using language we don't usually use in church, but that's okay. It's pretty awesome. A collection of starlings is called a murmuration. And Liberty Smith and Sophie Windsor Clive got to paddle under a murmuration. I love the laughter in that last moment of, the, of a human being just overcome like, oh, what am I seeing? Oh, poo, what have I just seen? <laughs> Is a murmuration of starlings ordered? Yes. It has a kind of mathematical order. Is it controllable? No. Is it abundant? Absolutely. It's, in the deepest sense of the word, cosmic. 
the Babylonian myth, and in fact every other degraded creation myth, including our own modern versions, think that disorder is the opposite of order. But God is not a linear God in this way. God is a kind of two-by-two God, so that order is one dimension, but abundance is the other. If you have neither one, neither order nor abundance, you have nothing. You have the neolo, the nihil, out of which the world was made. Neither structure nor teeming is a world that has no, yet no capacity. Nothing's been realized in it. If you have abundance without order, if you have lots of things teeming but no structure, you have my 15-year-old's room. Um, but uh, you could also call it chaos. And so the biblical world does recognize that there is something wrong about a world that has no structure to it, no form to it. But order without abundance is also not, not what God intends. Order without abundance is actually a machine. A machine is a, is a device or a, a, a creation, a work of, of hands, whether divine or human, that functions with complete order but with no teeming. No unpredictability, no wild variety, no exclamations of, oh my gosh, what did I just experience when those starlings came overhead? And this is not God's will for the world. This is not God's will for human beings. It is the will of every empire. Every empire wants the world to be a machine, to be controllable, to be ordered, but without the abundance that is in fact the glory of created things, that none of them are simply meant to be controlled and schematized and monitored in ways that limit their being. But instead, even the simplest order, um, Nate uh, pointed out that God created sex, and sex is an extraordinary example of this. Sexual reproduction takes the most basic kinds of order. On the one hand, the order of male and female, two contributors of, of gametes. Those gametes are rendered in almost a binary code, a, a kind of dual binary code, the GATC of DNA. It's, it's purely ordered, and yet out of sexual reproduction, unlike asexual reproduction, comes individual creatures who are not simply the sum of or a machine-like product of their parents. This is why it is so wrong for us to imagine cloning human beings. You're, you are not a clone. You are an abundant, teeming creature who came out of an ordered world, and yet you add unpredictable variety to that world. And that is how it's meant to be. And so if you have order and abundance together, you have cosmos. You have a, a beautiful, glorious creation. This is how it's meant to be. Now the amazing thing about human beings is that we come along and something interesting happens at the climax of creation. God has been saying the world is good. Good, 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 good. Six days of good. But when the human beings are in the world and when God has given them instructions and this kind of mandate to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, that is to, to structure the earth, to add dominion to the earth, but also to elicit teeming from the earth, be fruitful, multiply, at the end of day six, God doesn't just say, okay, another day. It was good again today. Instead, God says, well, in Hebrew, the way you're saying something's very something is you reduplicate, you repeat the adjective. So God's been saying it's tov, T-O-V, good, Tov, 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 tov. On day six, God says, now it's tov, tov. And having finished his creation, God then sits down, and of course we tend to think of this, at least I always thought of this as like a lazy boy. God reclines, you know, like, 
whew, that was a lot of work. No. When an, when, when an ancient Near Eastern god sits down, the god has finished the creative work and now sits down to rule, sits down to, to behold and reign as this god does not just want people to carry out his orders in some narrow way. This god is going to watch as his own image bearers further structure the world and further bring abundance into the world. So the human beings are going to bring a capacity to add order to the world and a capacity to elicit and discover teeming where you wouldn't have seen it before. So let me give you a few examples of this. Let's see. Um, oh, uh, uh, I won't show you another picture yet. I'll, I'll uh, give you a couple examples. So human beings um, take, I might as well go straight to the best example. They take grapes. All right, we might as well just go, go here. Um, <laughs> since this is the first church conference I've ever had that started with a happy hour at 4 p.m., just so you know. Um, <laughs> so human beings take grapes, and uh, they, they add order to the grapes. They, first of all, they cultivate them to select for certain qualities and properties. And then they, they elevate them, if possible, on trellises and other contraptions that allow the grapes to be exposed to the sun and also exposed to the wind, which is a kind of stressor to the grapevines and causes them to grow and add sugar to the process of the fruit, of making the fruit. And so human beings, uh, over generations, by the way, no one figures this out in, in, a, in a few days or years. It takes generations to figure this out. Add all this structure. Think about a beautifully structured um, vineyard. Um, rows, right? Very even, carefully tended rows of very, very carefully pruned vines. At the right moment, human beings harvest these grapes. And having harvested them, they then put them in very tightly defined conditions for a certain amount of time. And then they take off, uh, take out of these barrels that the product has been stored in for the right amount of time. Oh, by the way, earlier on they crushed the grapes uh, so that the yeast that was growing on the outside of the grape could mix with the sugar on the inside. And then the yeast would start teeming. And the yeast go and do their thing. They reproduce, basically. They reproduce and they excrete. And what they excrete is alcohol. So yeast pee is what you are drinking when you enjoy it. Right? So, all right, all this happens. We take out the result and... Uh, we take a drink, and if we're Baptists, we get grape juice, which is an astonishing technological achievement, actually. Uh, but I'm Anglican, and when we finish this process, we get wine. And here's the thing. I would say that grapes are good. Grapes are good. But I would say wine is very good. And that is the pattern of nature to culture. That is to say, nature, as created by God, is good in and of itself, fully itself, fully good. But when human beings come along, add more order, they discover more abundance, and it becomes very good. Culture is the process of adding structure and discovering abundance in the world. And when we do it the way we were meant to do it, I think even God says, now that is tov tov. Yes, my image bearers, you've been fruitful, you've multiplied, you've filled the earth in every possible dimension and domain of the earth. You've looked for properties of the created world that you could ex extract additional order from and you've discovered additional meaning. There's a scientist named Sir Gillian Prance who spent his life studying the, primarily the Amazon rainforest. He's, a, he's an ethnobotanist. Uh, so he studies plants and he studies the interaction of people with plants, especially in highly diverse environments like the rainforest. He's a member of the, fellow, the Royal Society in, in England, very eminent uh, scientist. And he's come to a quite extraordinary conclusion about his field of study. 
we think of the rainforest as the most um, biologically diverse uh, ecosystem on the planet because it has so many different kinds of species of both animals and plants. And what Sir Gillian has concluded is that the reason the rainforest is so astonishingly, div astonishingly diverse is actually human interaction. Because there have been human beings living in the rainforest for generations. And this is sometimes called the anthropogen uh, anthropogenetic theory of the rainforest. There is a school of thought of which Sir Gillian was one of the first that is beginning to persuade uh, biologists that the reason the rainforest is so gloriously diverse is that human beings were interacting with it all along. Not modern human beings, not industrialized human beings, but human beings who interacted patiently, attentively, who actually cleared certain parts of the forest and had extremely, it turns out, extremely sophisticated agricultural techniques that created tremendous biological richness that not only fed their people, but actually added to the biodiversity around them. That is not the story we usually hear, but it's an image-bearing story. That if human beings did their thing, Sir Julian points out the British Isles, before they were populated, were basically an oak monoculture, just oak trees over all the British Isles. But human beings come, they begin to add order and structure, they clear fields, they start to pasture sheep, they build hedges and uh, walls, and that creates all kinds of additional niches, and all kinds of creatures begin to flourish in the British Isles, not least birds. You know, the Brits are uh, notorious birders. Uh, they love to watch birds because there are so many birds in the British Isles. No, there were n nothing like that diversity before human beings showed up. Could it be that we are in the world for the world's flourishing? That we were meant as image bearers to discover and elicit all the possibilities latent in the world? I like to show a picture uh, almost every time I speak of my wife. This is my wife, Catherine. Uh, and I show it for a number of reasons, but relative to tonight and Nate's talk, she's a physicist. And she actually studies those tiny little things. And she may know a little more about them, Nate, than you implied, I just want to say. Um, my wife is an experimental physicist, so I married up in every possible way, uh, you can tell. Uh, and behind her, in this somewhat fizzy picture, is her lab table. Um, and what Catherine works with is femtosecond lasers, which are highly uh, regulated, pulsed, very quickly pulsed laser light. Lasers themselves are already highly structured light, but when you create a femtosecond laser, you add all kinds of structure and order to it. You bounce them around through all these prisms and mirrors that further refine the light, and then you let, let it hit a little piece of semiconducting material, uh, silicon or gallium arsenide. And astonishing things happen when the laser light hits that material. It begins to form these patterns, beautiful patterns at the nanoscale that turn out to have amazing quantum mechanical properties. They capture every photon that comes in and very efficiently turn, the, turn photons into electrons, into energy, among other things. What is Catherine doing as a scientist, as a physicist? She's adding order to the world and then she's discovering it does these extraordinary things. And even more extraordinary or equally extraordinary is she also does math. <laughs> and the world makes mathematical sense. It actually responds to the human desire for order that when we even come up with just imaginary kinds of order, like just on a blackboard, and I, I have no idea what this math is, it's some electromagnetic something or other, I don't know, ask Catherine, but 
you can uh, do the math of imaginary numbers and you come up with these things called Hilbert spaces. And, and uh, people did that back in the early 20th century and they thought, well, that's a beautiful ordering of imaginary world and, and literally imaginary numbers, the square root of minus one. But it obviously has no connection to the real world, right? Well, then in the middle of the 20th century, we start to discover, uh, we, we, we start to formulate quantum mechanics and formulate the, the, the mathematical formalisms that allow us to understand the non-linear, non-rational, non-ordered in a way properties of the most fundamental things in the universe, which turn out not to behave at all like billiard balls running around in a machine, but actually to, to be able to be in more places than one or actually to be smeared out kind of probability waves. And it turns out you have to use imaginary numbers to create the formalisms that accurately describe what we see experimentally in the world of quantum mechanics. A human being was able to intuit his way, Mr. Hilbert <laughs> was able, doctor, I'm sure it was Dr. Hilbert, <laughs> intuit his way to that, and then it turns out to map onto reality, and we can now begin to use that to unlock further abundance in the world. That's Tov Tov. Let me give you one more example. I have used all the time I was given. Can I use, it'll take four more minutes. I'm getting the go ahead. All right. It's more physics, actually. When you strike a string, like this low C that I just struck, it begins to resonate, and it resonates not just with one frequency, but with a whole bunch of frequencies at once. Just how strings work, there's a beautiful math to it, Fourier transforms and so forth, but really what's going on is this low C is ringing, and then another, what we call an overtone is ringing, one octave above it, the octave, the C above that low C, that note, is actually ringing in that lowest note. And then, the next overtone, the second overtone, is not another C, it's a G. It's this note. And then a couple overtones later comes this note, which is an E. And this set of notes is a major chord. Now, I like, a major, I like major chords. Let me play this. Isn't that lovely? It's very Christian chord, I think, very, um, very harmonious. And the reason it's so harmonious is all the overtones line up beautifully, as, as beautifully as we can do in our 12-tone system. And so you can take a major chord and just arpeggiate it, just add the most simple amount, the simplest bit of structure. So you're just playing it out over time. And then you might think, well, I could take those same 12 tones of the Western scale and I could play a chord where the overtones don't quite fit so well together. So I could play something like this. And now, because the overtones don't all fit neatly together, it creates a little sense of tension and a little sense of movement to something like this, which seems to lead back to that original chord. So. What Bach is doing in prelude number one from the Weltenberg Clavier is taking you through the most basic chord sequence of Western music, which is one, four, five, really five, seven, one. And if you know those chords, those most basic chords, you can be a worship leader. However, 
Uh, sorry, that is really not fair. That is so not fair. You need to know one other chord. You also need to know A minor in the key of C, the relative minor. And that's the next chord Bach goes to. But Bach says, I think there might be a few more chords possible. And what he starts to do, using the same simple structure, no alteration in the structure at all, same pattern, is just begin to ask, how much abundance can we wring out of the most fundamental properties of a struck string rendered into the 12 tones that we use in Western music? And he starts to explore dissonant chords or diminished chords like this one, minor chords like this. He starts to create little moments of tension, diminished chord, and resolution. And indeed, what Bach begins to do with this, the simplest of his pieces, the only one simple enough that I can play it and talk at the same time, is begin to tell this story where we started out at this home chord, which by the way, he reprises here. But he's taking us further and further away from it into greater and greater distance, greater and greater dissonance. So what's coming up is the most dissonant chord in the whole piece right here. And in that chord, if I just play it splat, it really sounds quite ugly, so I'll, I'll play it for you. <laughs> Very unchristian. Very dissonant. But in the context of the piece, even the dissonance is beautiful. And it's as if Bach is saying, how can I, in my image bearing, discover everything that God has put into this world? How can I find the maximum harmony, the maximum dissonance, order it all into a story that leads you inexorably back to the place where you started? And he's almost there, but he's going to give you one little surprise before he's done right there. And then he gives you the four and the five. And because I used up all my time, I'll just say, go and do likewise. Thank you.